Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight we present to you part two of our interview with McKenna Denson, the woman at the heart of the swirling controversy surrounding her allegations that she was raped at the Missionary Training Center in 1984 when she was a sister missionary, and that she was raped by none other than Joseph Bishop, the president of the Missionary Training Center. If you haven't already made a contribution to Mormon Discussions, I ask that you pause this interview and make that donation now. These podcasts take a great deal of time, work, and expense. I am happy to put forward the time and the work, but the expense we have to leave up to you, the listener. If you appreciate what Radio Free Mormon brings into your life, please make that donation today. And now, on to part two of Radio Free Mormon After Dark's interview with McKenna Denson. Okay, so McKenna Denson, thank you so much for joining us again on what is going to be part two of our interview. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. By the way, there have been a number of days that have gone by since we recorded part one. And in part one, there were a few things that you had um, not been able to remember. And one of those things was the three questions that you were asked on your polygraph test that you passed with flying colors. The two things you remembered was that you actually were raped by Joseph Bishop in the room in the basement of the Missionary Training Center. Correct. And you passed that, showing that you were being truthful. Mm -hmm. The second question had to do with your meeting with Carlos Acey. Right. And you said, yes, I did meet with him, and you passed that with flying colors too, correct? Correct. Okay, and that we're going to talk about a little bit more tonight because that is one of the primary bones of contention, I think, between you and the LDS Church, at least at this juncture. So it's interesting to note at the outset that you have passed a polygraph test on that question. I did, yes. Now, the third question, which you did remember, is a bit sensitive because it involves the other sister missionary who was meeting with you and Joseph Bishop at Joseph Bishop's request in his office at the MTC once it had been pared down from meeting with four sister missionaries to meeting with only two missionaries and before it was pared down further to just you meeting with Joseph Bishop on an individual basis. Right. And this other sister missionary has not gone public yet. We want to respect her confidentiality. Uh Uh-huh. But the question has to do with her name because the name was part of the question correct it was and the question then why don't you just tell the audience what the question was uh without revealing the name of this other sister missionary well the third question um had to do with the sister and then the name is given and was she one of the sister missionaries that was counseling with president bishop in his office prior to the sexual assault that happened at the mtc Okay, and you said yes? Yes. And you passed that question as well with flying colors? Correct. Okay, got it. Now, this woman also is the one who the church said in their second formal statement came out in 2010 
um, making accusations of a similar nature against Joseph Bishop. In the recording, Joseph Bishop said that she tried to commit suicide at the MTC. He took her home to live with him. Um, they had a back rub that got frisky. I find it hard to believe that that's all that happened, but eventually we will find out what actually happened because she will be deposed as soon as we get past our oral arguments in July. Understood. And going just a little bit further with that line of thought, this is also the same sister missionary that in the police reports with the investigation conducted by the BYU Police Department, uh-huh. where they talked with Joseph Bishop in early December of 2017, and he told them about the same sister missionary, except there he said that he gave her a back rub that ended up extending to rubbing her buttocks. Is that correct? That's correct. This sister missionary is also in the recording of the interview that you conducted with Joseph Bishop. Yes. And you could not remember her last name, correct? Correct. And you asked Joseph Bishop in the recording if he remembered this sister missionary. And by the way, let's just use a name here because it's going to be a little bit easier, I think, to understand. But let's say her name was Hillary Clinton, okay? Okay. Obviously, that's not her real name. Obviously. But you could only remember Hillary. Mm-hmm. That's you, right. Okay, excuse me. And you asked Joseph Bishop if he remembered Hillary. And he said, oh, yes, I remember Hillary Clinton. He right. He remembered her last name as well as her first name, correct? That's absolutely right, yes. And that was when, after remembering her last name and identifying her, that he admitted to you on tape after she had made a suicide attempt at the MTC that he had taken her to his house and given her a back rub, which then ended up getting frisky in his words and extending to her buttocks in the words that he used to the BYU police department. That's correct. That's the same woman. Now, once again, still using the name Hillary Clinton for this sister missionary. You had lost contact with her since seeing her at the MTC. Is that correct? You know, the last time I saw her, yes, was at the MTC. And I... Stopped going to Joseph Bishop's office um, after he took me down to the basement and raped me in that secret room that he had. I never saw her. I never interacted with her at the MTC except in his main upstairs office where we were groomed together. Okay. No, so I, I never knew if she went on her mission, if she just stopped attending, if he was molesting her while she was at the MTC, or did he just molest her in his home? Did he rape her? Did he sexually assault her? I had no idea. And you have no information as to any possible connection between any possible assault by Joseph Bishop on the sister missionary and her reported suicide attempt at the MTC? I I don't. I don't have any information on that. I do know, based on her being in the office with us, that she did have sexual abuse as a child because that was the commonality between us was was our childhood sexual trauma. Right, and that was the commonality between all four of the sisters, correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay, now you mentioned about the church's second statement that it issued back in the week of March 19th of 2018. It issued Uh a first statement on, I think, Tuesday, and then a second statement on either Thursday or Friday at the end of the week. And at the second uh, statement, they mentioned that they were aware of another sister missionary who had made allegations against Joseph Bishop, correct? Right, that's right. And you said that you think or that you know that this same sister missionary mentioned in the church's second statement is this same sister missionary that we've been talking about under the name Hillary Clinton. Correct. How do you know that? In the church's formal statement, the second formal statement about my case, they indicated that the the woman in my recording that Joseph Bishop was talking about was the other sister missionary that was groomed with me at the MTC. Oh, I see. So the LDS Church in its second official statement already made that connection. Correct. Got it. Okay, so it sounds pretty solid then. We'll get to that report in 2010 uh, eventually. But okay. for right now, we left you having been interviewed by Apostle Thomas S. Monson and apparently cleared to go back on your mission, but instead of going to Washington, D.C., you were sent to... 
the Wisconsin-Milwaukee mission. So after you got back from your mission, what happened next? I went back to California, and from there, I went to Nevada, and then from there, I went to Utah Valley Community College in Provo. Oh, sorry, in Orem. Okay, was it at Utah Valley Community College that your bishop was Ron Levitt? It was. Um, I attended a BYU ward because I lived in a BYU ward housing area. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't live in Orem, so I, I lived closer to the BYU campus. And yes, that's when Ron Levitt was my young single adult ward bishop. Okay, so this is around 1987, correct? Yes, that's right. And this is the point at which you go to your bishop, Ron Levitt, and you, for the first time, if I'm not mistaken, report what happened between you and Joseph Bishop at the MTC report in terms of telling someone in authority who may have a duty to report yes i spoke to my fiance at the time he thought that i should let it go he didn't think i should report it he said it's over it's in the past let's just move forward i didn't agree with that you've um, been having some discussions with your fiance before going to ron levitt correct and you had reached the point now where you wanted to report it to somebody in authority I absolutely wanted to report it to someone in authority. Yes, I did. Why the change? Um, I think it weighed really heavily on my mind, and I was thinking that there's no way I could be the only woman that was raped by him or assaulted at the time. I didn't even know it was rape. And I was, even though I was still ashamed, I was moving on with my life. I was about to get married in the temple, and I wanted everything to be open, transparent, and on the table. Okay, so you want to report it to your bishop, and you want to do that enough to override the wishes of your fiancé, is that correct? Yes, absolutely. I did not agree with what he said, um, so I went with my gut. I went with what I thought was the right thing to do. Tell us about your meeting with Ron Levitt, your bishop. Um, I went to his home where he had an office where he would talk to the young adults um, as in the capacity of a bishop. And I told him, I don't remember the great detail, but I, I do know that I told him that Joseph Bishop at the MTC had assaulted me, that there was a room in the basement, um, and that I felt like there was at least one other sister at the MTC who had been assaulted as well. I wasn't sure because this sister that we now are calling Hillary Clinton, she was groomed beside me for for quite a while. So I was concerned about her, and I was concerned that there were other women, other sister missionaries. Um, I explained it to him. He was was upset. He said that he would make some calls. He called me a little while later. I don't remember if it was the next day, two days, a week. I don't know. And he said, I have arranged for you to meet with Carlos Acey of the Quorum of the Seventy. And I, I didn't know who Carlos Acey was. I'd never heard of him. Um, I thanked him, and he arranged the time. And my fiancé at the time drove me to the interview, came I, in and shook. Can I stop you right mm-hmm. there? Please. Before we go on, I want to go back a little bit to Ron Levitt. Because he has been or has become a person of significance in this entire case. And yes, reason, he has. Yes, and the reason why is because he talked to the press and he even went on TV on the Thursday of the week of the 19th. So that would be the 19th, 20th, 20th. On the 22nd of March Correct. Of this year, he was interviewed by a newscast and he went on record, or at least on the newscast, as saying that he did remember you're coming to him, he remembered you're talking to him about going down into a room in the basement and perhaps with another sister missionary. He said that you had said something about Joseph Bishop showing you pornography Uh and that his impression was that he thought that you were neurotic, I believe was his word, that he thought this was an incredible tale, that it was impossible for him to believe and that he therefore did not report it to anyone. That's exactly what he said. He also said that I tended to embellish, I I think, 
were his words. Mm-hmm. He was quite dismissive. Yes, he was. He was. He was. <laughs> in that news report, he sure was. And this ends up becoming something I think that's a very important fact in your case. This meeting with Carlos Acey, which we'll get to here in a minute. But in that same interview, your bishop, Ron Levitt, may have slipped up and said that he had received at least three phone calls from church leaders about this case within the past 10 days. And of course, 10 days goes back to a week before the audio was even leaked by Mormon leaks. How is that possible? Well, I think it's possible because we know that David Jordan was conducting an investigation. Oh, I see. Yes, you're absolutely right. In fact, during the meeting with David Jordan and my attorney in Colorado Springs, I named Ron Levitt um, directly as my singles ward bishop that I reported to. Right. It would make sense for David Jordan to contact Ron Levitt about the situation to see what he had to say about it. What struck me as strange is that Ron Levitt did not say that the church's attorney had contacted him. He said that he had been contacted at least three times by church leaders. And right. what that seems to me is, is that, I mean, I can understand one phone call because really what Ron Levitt has to say is very brief. You could say it in a minute, and I think he does that in the interview. Uh-huh. And that's really just one phone call. And maybe another phone call to corroborate it or see if you remembered anything else. But when you start getting to three phone calls, to my mind, it starts being suggestive of the fact that maybe the purpose of the phone calls is not just to find out what Ron Levitt remembered, but maybe to help Ron Levitt remember things in a way that is advantageous to the church. In other words, not just getting information from him, but giving him information as to what he should say to the reporters. I agree with that. In fact, the way that he reported the story to Chris Jones at KUTV um, was very different from the way it really happened. So, yeah. Right. But of course, here we have disputed facts. You say one thing, he says another. And what I'm trying to do is figure out, okay, which version is more likely to be correct, looking at other evidence. So we've got three phone calls from church leaders. We've got the fact that you have passed a polygraph test saying that you did meet with Carlos Acey because obviously the point of your bishop, Ron Levitt, saying he didn't report it to anybody else in the church is to undermine your claim that you met with Carlos Acey about this because the church does not want you to have reported this to anybody in authority. And by that, I mean anybody above a local authority. They don't want you to have reported it to a general authority like Carlos Acey was at the time. He was a member of the 70. In fact, he was the executive director of the missionary program. So he was the person who would have been the general authority to talk with you. Interesting. The other thing I want to talk to you about before we go on to Carlos Acey is this. Ron Levitt seems to have been dismissive of you, to have thought you were neurotic in his words, to have not thought you were really trustworthy. Can you tell the audience about other interactions you had with Ron Levitt after you reported this to him that would make it seem like he actually did trust you and did think that you were honest? So after I reported the sexual assault at the MTC, Ron Levitt um, signed my temple recommend. He attended my wedding in the Manti Temple. Okay, can you back up for just a second? Uh-huh. Because not all of my listeners may know that a temple recommend is given to a member of the church to go to the temple, but to get the temple recommend, you have to answer a number of questions. Okay. And the last question in the temple recommend interview at the time was, are you honest? Are you honest in all your dealings with your fellow men? Right. Mm-hmm. And you said yes. Yes, of so course. apparently, Ron Levitt, to whom you had already reported this, believed that you were honest in your dealings with your fellow men sufficiently to sign off on your temple recommend. Is that right? That's absolutely right, which means he believed what I told him about Joseph Bishop. So, yes. Okay, so we talked about the temple, and you talked about your temple wedding, and was Ron Levitt in attendance? He was. Ron Levitt attended my temple wedding, and then right after I was married, I took my husband and a group of us, um, friends, and my ex-husband's sister to Taiwan, and... 
Ron Levitt sent his daughter, Tammy, when she was 17, to live with me for a summer in Taiwan. When I returned to the States to renew my visa, I would always fly up to Salt Lake, rent a car, and stay with Ron and his wife, Liz, um, at their home. Even after I had my daughter, Nicole, who was the oldest daughter, the first daughter that I had in Taiwan, Jessica being my very first daughter that I gave up for adoption, after Nicole was born... I still stayed at the Levitt's home, and I have photographs of Ron Levitt um, with my daughter, Nicole, at their home. Okay, so basically what you're describing to me is a close relationship with Ron Levitt and his family. Well, let me tell you one more thing. Yeah. When I was in Taiwan, and I was pregnant with my second baby, which was Amanda, I was two hours away from the hospital. And so Ron Levitt put Demerol tablets in a contact lens container and shipped them to me so that if I started contractions and they were going too quickly, I could take the Demerol and it would slow my contractions so that I wouldn't have the baby in the car but would actually make it to the hospital. Wow, it sounds like he was very, very close to you and very much cared about you. Very much so. Yes. And we'll just hope for purposes of his welfare that the statute of limitations has run on sending controlled substances through the federal mail. Oh, especially internationally, right? Yes. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Thank you. Okay. But he did. Ron Levitt and his family cared very much for me. And what you're describing to me are actions by Ron Levitt at the time, which strike me as somewhat inconsistent with his claim that he's making now that he really didn't trust you or believe you and that he thought you were neurotic. Absolutely. So that's what I wanted to put the cap on with Mr. Levitt before we went on to Carlos Acey. Okay. All right, so Bishop Levitt has arranged for a meeting or someone else has arranged for a meeting. Anyway, I think it's pretty clear by this point that he did call somebody in church authority and a meeting was arranged between you and Carlos Acey. One other thing that I want to point out now is that the church is really trying to defend against your meeting with Carlos Acey because in their first official statement, they said that Carlos Acey has passed away, which we all know, but that they yes. have gone through his papers and there is no record of a meeting or an interview between Carlos Acey and you. Yes, I read that. Right. So it's very obvious to me that they are really wanting to defend on that point. So. Uh, your bishop now, who had arranged the meeting with Carlos Acey, gets three calls from church leaders, at least three calls, according to him, within the past week and a half before right. he went on the news. And now he has this very different story from what you say happened. So let's go on with what happened with Carlos Acey. What would you like to know? Where did you meet him? A church building, like a meeting house. In what city? I believe it was in Orem. Was it on a weekday? It was on a weekday, yes. Was it in the evening? It was in the evening, yes. How long after you reported the assault to your bishop did you meet with Carlos Acey approximately? Mm, I would say about a week. It seemed relatively quick, and I was glad because I was very busy making wedding plans. With your fiancé, of course. Yes. How did you get notified that you were to meet Carlos Acey at the building, the church building in Orem, was it? I believe it was in Orem, yes. Uh, Ron Levitt, my bishop, called and made the arrangements. Okay, so your bishop now, Ron Levitt, the one who's denying reporting it to anybody, called you and said, okay, I've made the arrangements for you to meet with Elder Carlos Acey at this building at this time on this day. Yes, Did you go, correct. I'm sorry. Did you go alone? No, my fiancé drove me. Your fiancé drove you. Did your fiancé say hi to Elder Acey at the building? He did. He um, he got out of the car, came in, and shook Elder Acey's hand. Uh, he wasn't part of the interview process, but he waited in the hallway, yes. Okay, so in addition to your fiancé, are there any other witnesses that saw you and Elder Acey at the building at the same time? In yes, the there is. Time period? There is. It has come forward, yes. Okay, very good. So this is starting to look much better for your version of events about meeting Carlos Acey and much worse for Bishop Ron Levitt. Well, you know, the truth has a way of coming out. Just like the gentleman that came forward who was 
and employed at the MTC and recognized the room in the basement that I described. I don't know who that person is. Um, and this person didn't know who I was, but he does recall at that time, Carlos AC being at that building. So yes, okay. it's interesting. And to be clear, those are two different people that you're talking about. Completely different people. Okay. Go ahead and tell us about the meeting with Carlos AC. You know, I don't really remember a whole lot about it, but I do remember um, explaining to Elder AC the process, the grooming process, how there were four sister missionaries, including myself, and there were two, including myself, and then it became one-on-one. And I remember sharing the inappropriate sexual stories that Elder, excuse me, that President Bishop shared with me about his wife um, and about the hot tub or hot springs. I don't remember a whole lot more. I just remember telling him what happened. What was Elder AC's reaction? He was rather stoic. You know, he didn't seem to have a lot of emotion. It seemed very rigid, like he was just taking the information in. Like it didn't move him at all. What did he say at the end of the meeting? The last thing I remember at the end of the meeting was um, Elder AC said that he would look into it and get back to me. Okay, and that was it? That was it, yes. And then did you ever hear anything back from Carlos AC or anybody else in the church related to this? Not a word. Not a word. But again, I left the country shortly after I got married, um, and I was in Taiwan for about three years or so. So I guess because we're members of the church and we have church records, they would have known how to get a hold of me. Um, but no one did, no. And it wasn't until I, re- I returned from Taiwan, got divorced, and started looking into what happened with Joseph Bishop. I was very curious to know what the follow-up was. Okay, so now you've reported it once to your bishop, and you reported a second time to Carlos Acey. Yes. And then nothing happened. It's been about three years, perhaps a little bit more than that. You're starting to wonder what, if anything, happened as a result of your report And what's the next step that you take? The next step I take is I talk to another bishop who sends me to the stake president who calls Salt Lake and there's no response. Where were you at that time living? I think I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. Okay. And around when was this? Gosh, um, 92 maybe. Okay. And so you report to your bishop. He reports to the stake president. Stake president calls Salt Lake and nothing. Nothing. And, and it, it that's the, the same pattern for the next, I don't know, what, 30 years, 20 years, whatever it is. Um, and it was in 2010 when I really got tired of hearing nothing, and I called Salt Lake myself. I was in Pleasant Grove, Utah. Um, I was staying at a friend's townhouse. It wasn't, it wasn't my residence. And I reached out to the local bishop there. Um, they couldn't help me, so I called Salt Lake myself. And someone on the other end of the phone said I wasn't entitled to know if there was a church council held, if anyone had spoken to Joseph Bishop. I wasn't entitled to know. And how did that make you feel? I was pissed. So what did you do? Well, I thought, you know what? I'm the victim. And I, and I told this man this over the phone, I'm the victim. I, I think I'm entitled to know if there was a council held, if he denied it, did he admit it? But the gentleman just kept saying, you're not entitled. And he was quite curt about it. Um, So I I made a death threat. I told that man on the phone that I knew where Joseph Bishop lived, and I had a gun, and I'd go shoot that bastard myself. And then what happened? Not ten minutes later, there was a knock at the door, and it was the Pleasant Grove Police Department. And they were inquiring um, about the death threat. So I explained to them, Joseph Bishop was my mission president at the MTC. He sexually assaulted me. I can't get any answers. And they left. Okay. And the reason that this is significant, not only because it's a part of your story, but also because this is one of the places where in the first statement released by the church on March 20th of 2018, they kind of dissembled there. They kind of tried to tell the truth, but they didn't really tell the truth. What they said was that you had reported this in 2010 to the church, and the church immediately contacted the local authorities, correct? Correct. And the impression that I think they were trying to give, it's certainly the impression I got from reading it, 
was that they had called the authorities to report your allegation that Joseph Bishop had raped you at the MTC. That's what I thought they were doing, too. But in fact, they weren't calling authorities to report that. They were calling the authorities to report you. Yes, they were calling the authorities to report that I made a death threat. Okay. Against Joseph Bishop. Mm Mm-hmm. So the police Absolutely. Then, I'm sorry. So the police then investigated. They found out there wasn't a basis to do anything with it, and that was the end of that as far as the death threat was concerned. Correct. All right. So that's 2010. Now, mm-hmm. did you make another report in 2016? I made reports in between, but yes, I did again make a report to my um, state president in Pueblo, Colorado. Um, I explained to him what Joseph Bishop did, that he sexually assaulted me at the MTC, and this man has a big heart, and he has daughters. He was very moved, physically, emotionally moved by that story, and he was angry, and he said he would get to the bottom of it. Um, His name is President Bertaldo. He's a radiologist here in Pueblo, Colorado. And then I didn't hear anything for almost a year, not a word. McKenna, can I ask you a question right now? Sure. Do you want people to know that you live in Pueblo, Colorado? Because you just said that. Everyone knows I live in Pueblo, Colorado. Okay, I just wanted to make sure because I could edit that out if you wanted. Oh, thank you. No, it's already been publicized. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay, so uh, okay, so I'll continue. So you reported it to your state president, and then what happened? What did he do? My state president, um, I don't know. I, I do know now, but I didn't know for a year. So about late November, maybe the 28th, I believe, of November, I was sitting at my desk at work, and I worked for an interior designer here in Pueblo. And um, I had just learned that my husband was serving in the state presidency in Idaho, and my ex-husband owes $59,000 in back child support. And I was really angry, and I thought, you know what, that... That's so typical in the Mormon church. You just go into your priesthood holder and you say whatever you want to, and then you can have a temple recommend and you can have a a calling. So you're in Pueblo, Colorado at the time. Yes. And your ex-husband is serving in a state presidency in Idaho. Correct. Even though he owes you $59,000 in back child support. Yes, and I have the documents to prove that, the court records. And that is also one of the questions in the temple recommend interview. It is. It absolutely is. So it made me angry and it made me, in my mind, go back to Joseph Bishop. It's like, well, why are these men allowed to do what they do? So that's when I got on the phone. I got on the phone within minutes of that sort of epiphany. Wait a minute. None of this is right. None of this is right. And that's when I got on the phone and I called the Provo Police Department and they said they didn't have jurisdiction. So they had to send me to the BYU police. And I didn't think there was any chance whatsoever I was going to get any help from the BYU police. But I went ahead and and reported what I had to um, to the dispatchers. She said she would give it to the detectives. I didn't expect to hear anything, but shortly after that, a detective um, named Sergeant Bob Nelson called me. He asked some questions about the allegations I was making about Joseph Bishop and assaulting me in this room in the basement. Um, He told me that his office was actually at BYU. This particular sex crimes detective team were at the MTC. They have an office in the MTC. And he went and he looked for the room. He came back. He took a picture of Joseph Bishop's um, photograph that's hanging on the wall as a former mission president and uh, he asked some other questions and then he called again and he asked if I would be available on December 4th to do an interview um, that he and his partner were going to come to Colorado and I said you're gonna fly to Colorado to interview me it was the first time anyone in law enforcement or anything else ever took me seriously and he said no we're gonna drive Because after my partner and I interview you, we're going to drive down and interview Joseph Bishop. Okay, this is absolutely, I mean, they're doing great, but this has got to be stunning to you. How many years has it been of you reporting things and reporting it and reporting it to church authorities and nobody doing anything? And now finally, you get upset about your ex-husband and his situation. You end up calling the BYU police and they're taking it seriously. How does that feel? I, I felt validated. I was ecstatic, um, but I panicked for a minute because I thought, 
I really needed to get a confession out of Joseph Bishop because I really, in my gut, felt like he was going to lie to them. Okay, so what so did you do? I called Salt Lake. First, I called the MTC and asked if um, if they had any information on where Joseph Bishop was, and they said they have they don't keep track of old mission presidents. Back up so, for just a second. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting. So back to the death threat. When you told the yes. person on the phone in Salt Lake that you knew where he lived and you were going to shoot the bastard yourself, you actually uh -huh. didn't know where he lived. I had no idea. Okay, got it. Okay, so you're trying to find out where he lives now so you can go and try and get a confession out of him. Correct. Okay, so you call the MTC. Go ahead, please. I called the MTC um, to find out if they had any information on a former mission president's whereabouts, and they said they, they don't keep track. And they referred me to Salt Lake, uh, the mission office. So I called up there, and, and I asked if they had any information on my former mission president. His name's Joseph Bishop. He served in the Buenos Aires North Mission in Argentina. And they I got transferred several times. And then finally, I hooked up with a guy named Jared Kessler. And Jared Kessler gave me his address. Um, Jared I told Kessler him, gave you Joseph, Joseph Bishop's address? Yes, in Chandler, Arizona, which we all know. That's public now. So I was really excited. And I got online, and I put his address in the church's website. So the Mormon church has a website. So if you're traveling, and it's Sunday, and you want to attend a local ward, you put in the address that you're staying, your hotel or wherever you're staying, and it tells you where the nearest ward is, what time they meet, who the bishop is, the stake president, etc. So I put Joseph Bishop's address into the church's website and got his ward, his bishop's name, his stake president's name. It also had the missionaries listed. But it did not have his phone number. No. No, it didn't have his phone number. Um, so I tried to call the bishop. There wasn't an answer. So I called the missionaries and this new, he had to be a brand new missionary. Um, his name was Elder Star. Why do you think he was brand new? Because he didn't have a clue <laughs> what I was talking about. He was pretty, and, and he didn't know anything about Joseph Bishop. When I'd been on my mission 23 months, I would have sounded like I didn't have a clue too. <laughs> That's funny. Well, he didn't have a clue, bless his heart. But I, I asked him, I said, look, there's, um, there's a group of us. I don't know if I have the right ward yet, but there's a group of us that are trying to surprise our former mission president. He was mission president in Buenos Aires North Mission in Argentina. His name is Joseph Bishop. Is he in your ward? And bless his heart, this kid is like, I, I don't know. Let me ask my companion. And his companion confirmed it. And he said, oh, Joe Bishop, Brother Bishop. Yeah, he's in our ward. You want his phone number? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. So he gave me the cell number. The cell number. Yep. The missionary gives you the cell phone number of Joseph Bishop in Chandler, Arizona. That's correct. And by the way, just for my audience, in case they don't know, before Joseph Bishop was the president of the MTC, he had been a mission president in Argentina. Correct. And that's what you're playing off of. That's exactly what I'm playing off of. Okay, so you've got now Joseph Bishop's cell phone number. What do you do? Well, I wasn't really thinking clearly, I called the airline, made a flight reservation, got a hotel and a rental car. And then I thought, oh, crikey, what if he's not even in town? <laughs> so I called Joseph Bishop and I said, hi, you don't know me. Um, I'm writing an article about high level Mormon officials, mission presidents, temple presidents, um, because I don't think they get enough attention the great work that they do. And I would really love to come and interview you. I'm going to be in Phoenix on Saturday. Would you be free for an interview? And he just went on and on and on about how grateful he was. Nobody pays attention to him anymore. And what a great um, service I was doing, bringing joy to so many people by writing about him. And <laughs> I'm sorry. And, I'm sorry. I, no, I've been okay. trying to hold the laughter back. I was trying to hold it back myself. Okay. Okay. So, um, Anyway, I said, yeah, it'd be great to, to interview you. Um, I'll be there on Saturday. And he said, why don't you come to my house at 2 o'clock? And he gave me his address. He didn't know I already had it. And I said, that'd be great. Thank you so much. I'll let you know when I get there. And that was on a Thursday. So I flew out on Friday. And then Saturday morning, I called him. And I said, look, I've got a temple president um, from Taiwan, Bart Gillespie. He really was my, my temple president in Taiwan. 
he and his wife are running behind. Would you mind terribly if I had you come to my hotel about three o'clock? And he said, oh, you want me to come to your hotel? And I said, well, there's a conference room. Yeah, to the conference room, if you're okay with that. Dang it, not the hotel room, Joseph. (laughs) At new. (laughs) So he perked right up. And he said, would you mind if I brought my wife and my son? And I said, no, that'd be great. I'd love to meet them. Wait a second. Wait a minute. He he says, would you mind if I brought my wife and my son? Yes. Well, that would put the whole kibosh on it, wouldn't it? Uh, It would have done, but I fixed it. I said, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to meet them. I would love to meet your wife. I didn't know at the time that Carolyn, his first wife, had died and that he was remarried. Actually, he was divorced at the time, but hoping to remarry this woman that he was hoping to bring to the interview. Anyway, I told him, I said, that'd be great. I would love that. But there are parts of the interview that are just one-on-one. They're real personal. They were spiritual. And he said, yeah, that's great. That's okay. And I said, but you're absolutely welcome to bring anyone you want. After I hung up, I got on the phone with my friend um, and she walked me through again because we'd been prepping for this for a few days how to deal with a narcissist, how to, how to talk to a covert narcissist and exploit his, his areas of weakness so that he might feel safe talking. Hmm. Well, my ex-wife I, could help you out with that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Give me your number. I'll call her right now. <laughs> so she was actually on the phone with me right as I walked into the conference room or the, the lobby where the conference room was. Um, and so she heard Joseph Bishop's voice because he stood right up as if he knew who I was. So I introduced myself and I led him into the conference room. And then I thought, oh, crikey, I am not ready. I'm not prepared. I'm such an amateur. I had the recorder with me, but it wasn't set up. So I went to the front desk and I asked them if they had any duct tape and I bought water. Um, we needed water when you're going through an interview. Um, and I had to wait cause I didn't have any duct tape, but somebody brought the clear packing tape for when you're like moving and you're taping up your boxes. I didn't know if it would stick underneath the table or not, but I didn't want him to know I had a recorder. So you're going to tape this recorder and you're going to take it and tape it up underneath the bottom of the table where you're conducting the interview with Joseph Bishop. Right in front of him. Yes, it was very stealth. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I did, actually. Um, I got a big piece of tape and I didn't even know if my recorder was on. I hoped it was, but I wasn't sure and I couldn't check. So I handed him his water bottle and I dropped mine under the table And when I went down to to pick it up, I taped the recorder with a microphone toward him under the table. And I just hoped, hoped, hoped that it was turned on. This is like a scene out of Mission Impossible. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, it kind of was, I guess. But so you end up taping it under the table while he's sitting there at the table. Yes. And he never caught on. No, not a clue. So then you started the interview. I I did. And I was really nervous at first, like the first, I don't know, three or four minutes. I acted like a bumbling idiot. But then I got comfortable and he was he was so easy to pull the positive things out of his life, his books, um, his education, the things, some of the spiritual things he talked about that he says he doesn't normally share. And that was about 40 minutes, maybe 41 minutes. I don't know. But that's what we focused on. It was all about him. He was a narcissist, and I had to get him comfortable enough to trust me. And having, I had worked in Kentucky um, as a as a substance abuse counselor in court, so I understood addiction enough to know that if I gave him a sex addiction out as an excuse for his bad behavior, he may take it. And if he did that, he would be more apt to admit what he did. I just didn't know that he was going to take it and run with it and talk about all these other people that I had no idea about. Can I ask you, what did he wear to the interview? He wore khaki pants, loafers, and a polo shirt that was unbuttoned at the neck. What was his demeanor through the interview? At first, he was really excited to be there. Um, Very excited to talk about these great things that have happened to him, thinking that what he had to share was so important, he might have an interview or even um, an article all about him. When the tables turned and I was trying to express to him and explain who I was, he thought I was different people. 
his demeanor didn't really change. In fact, when he started asking questions and then volunteering information, it seemed very rehearsed. It seemed like he had already done it. And this was not the first time somebody had accused him of something. I don't want to go into a lot of detail regarding the contents of the interview because that is available for anybody to listen to who wants to. But I do want to make this point that it is strange that at the 44 minute mark or wherever it is where you sort of reveal who it is that you really are and start talking to him about his sexual assault on you, Mm -hmm. that that's the point in the talk show where the guest gets up and storms off the set. (laughs) Yeah, it's supposed to be. But he keeps talking for another hour. You know, I think there was a part of him that wanted to be heard. He wanted to own that conversation and direct it the way that he wanted it to be presented. He wanted to make excuses. He wanted me to understand why he did these things. Um, It was in that interview that he talked about this sister missionary that we name as um, Hillary Clinton, where he explains that she tried to commit suicide and he took her to his home and, and that's where he assaults her. And this is the first time you even heard about his doing that or her attempting suicide. Absolutely. I had no idea uh, what happened to her, where she was, what, yeah, I had no idea. I was really, um, it was really hard to maintain my composure because I was really getting pissed off with him. He was so arrogant. And I want to add this. This is um, an observation I've made because I know that there has been some criticism of the interview arguing that he's an elderly man, he has some health problems, his memory is not very good, and to expect him to recall things about his sexual peccadilloes in the past <laughs> is, yeah. is, not, is not reasonable under the circumstances. But then on the other hand, you've got 44 minutes leading up to this right. where he's talking about all these other experiences that he's had. And I just wanted to ask you, Did he seem to have any problems with his memory during the first 44 minutes where he's saying positive things about himself? Not a moment's hesitation. No. And I don't believe for a minute that um, because of his age or the fact that he had been ill uh, has anything to do with what he was remembering and how he was remembering it. I do believe that there are so many women he can't keep us all straight. So I believe that when he asked if I was the girl with biker friends um, and then he asked if I was the one that wanted my picture taken at the MTC. And then he asked me if I was, um, oh, the girl with the breast enhancement. He was talking about different victims and he really was trying to pinpoint who I was, which one I was. And he talked about one sister missionary exposing herself to him. Right. And that was not you. No, that wasn't me. No. So the impression you got was that in trying to identify who you were after you had said that you were one of his victims, Uh that he may have had so many that he was having difficulty placing you. Yes. He was trying to identify which one I was, which victim is she. But he didn't know he was being recorded, so he was quite free with his open discussion and trying to, you know, openly figure things out. What was the single most striking thing to you? about what Joseph Bishop said during your interview of him. The most single striking thing about his verbal diarrhea? Yes. Um, just the fact that he kept on talking. If he had any sense whatsoever, he would have just stopped. It was it was amazing to me that he he continued to talk. He continued to explain. It's like he really wanted to be heard. I do believe that he has um suffered from guilt i do because i just can't see unless you're a sociopath i can't see you hurting people raping people assaulting women ruining their lives and feeling completely okay with that did you get the sense that he was seeking for your forgiveness i don't know how genuine it was but yes he he apologized over and over and over in fact he apologized before he even knew what he was supposed to be apologizing for I first said I was at the MTC with him, and he said, that's why you're so talented, and I kind of laughed. And and then he's trying to place me, but he doesn't even know what he did to me, and he's already apologizing. And I said, you, you know, I, I'm not angry. I just need an apology. And he says, well, you ought to be. That you ought to be angry. I ought to be angry, yeah. 
you ought to be. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this. How did the interview conclude? Because now he's been talking to you about all of his sexual history, or at least a lot of his sexual history, for going on an hour. The interview concludes. Is that awkward? He had to go to the bathroom. So I I was done. I was just like, oh, my gosh, I am so done. I just ended it. I just took three quarter and left. But, you know, earlier you asked me about the, really the most profound part of the interview itself. Um, what stuck out the most to me and what was the most surprising to me was he was talking about his mission presidency in Argentina, which was about three years. Um, he had a three year tenure as a mission president in Argentina, and then he came to the MTC. During that time, as mission president in Argentina, he talks about a sister missionary who was besieged by evil spirits, and that he felt like he was also being attacked by evil spirits, and it scared him so much that he reached out to Elder Robert Wells, who was um, his leader, his his go-to leader. He was in the area, area. In the area presidency yes, over South America. He was, right. Chile, Argentina, and Paraguay. I can't remember all the, all the countries. But that he had confessed everything he could remember from early childhood. Every sexual sin, every sin, every everything. Because he thought the devil had taken over him and he needed to repent. So that surprised me. Um, that he had already told the general authority about his sexual sins and that he was a sexual predator. It also surprised me in the um, interview that he says, I'm Joe, because we were talking about when I was facilitating AA groups in my substance abuse counseling. I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. And he said, yeah, I'm Joe, I'm a sexual predator. And he, and he talked about being a lifelong predator and that he had had this problem his whole life. He also talks about on that recording that he has five sons, two of which have the same sexual addiction that he has, which I found interesting. Wow. And I asked him if it was hereditary. Was it a learned behavior? So he goes to the bathroom now after an hour and 45 minutes. Is that the point you just decide to grab your recorder out from under the table and leave? Yes. I didn't think I was going to get any more from him. And quite frankly, I was a little overwhelmed. I had no idea the information he was just going to share. Yeah. Although he never, he never admitted that he raped me. He said that he, um, he couldn't remember that part. He said he didn't know if he blocked it out or if it would come back to him, like some of the other flashbacks that the missionaries had at the MTC. Um, he said there are a lot of things he thinks he should be worried about now, and I, I agree. Yeah, there are a lot of things you should be worried about. Which brings us to your meeting with the uh, BYU police. Uh-huh. Let me just go ahead and truncate things a little bit, because now we're getting much closer to the present. Okay. Where I've covered a great deal of this in prior podcasts. Right. And I don't mean to squelch you at all, but we're already, oh, we're at about an hour now. Uh-huh. So you have this recording now. And you meet with the BYU police and you give them the recording, is that correct? No, I didn't give them a recording for several days. I didn't trust anyone. No, I didn't give it to them right away. Okay, but after they talked with you, they went to visit and talk with and interview Joseph Bishop in Arizona. Yes, but it, it, would you mind, terribly if we back up for just a second? There is a part. No, please. There's a reason the police came to my home. And it's, um, it's, it's kind of miraculous, really. So... Bob Nelson called the prosecutor's office there in Provo and talked to a junior assistant attorney. And that particular junior assistant attorney told the BYU Police Department that there is no statute of limitations on rape in Utah. So the BYU police thought that they were going to be able to make an arrest. They were given the wrong information. The junior attorney didn't understand or didn't know that because this rape actually took place in 1984, that the statute of limitations applied to 1984. Right. That the change in the statute of limitations, making there no statute of limitations, was much more recent than 1984 and it was not retroactive. Correct. So the BYU police continued the investigation, drove to my home in Colorado, and then drove to Chandler, Arizona to interview Joseph Bishop. And it wasn't until they learned that the statute of limitations from 1984 applied to this case that they didn't have a case. That's when when the case closed. Right. And that was the end of December. 
Uh, yes, I think it was like the 21st um, where the prosecutor says he would likely have prosecuted Mr. Bishop, save for the statute of limitations. But the interesting thing is here is that had the BYU police gotten the correct information, this case wouldn't have gotten this far. They wouldn't have come right. right. They would not have come to Colorado. They would not have put pressure on me, which made me secretly go and interview Joseph Bishop. I thought we had a criminal case. I didn't even know we had a, a civil case. So it was this mistake by the deputy prosecutor in misunderstanding the statute of limitations that led to this entire investigation happening. You're absolutely right. Yes. And I don't know who, I know it wasn't Mr. Sturgill because he knows what the laws are. Um, but yes, it was a mistake. It was just a mistake. Right. And it's an understandable mistake. You open up the statute, it says there's no statute of limitations. That's the answer. There you go. But it changed history. That little mistake changed history. Interesting. Now, I do want to mention that um, the BYU police went to Chandler, Arizona. They interrogated Joseph Bishop. <laughs> I don't know that I would call it an interrogation. I think they could have gotten a lot more information had they interrogated him, but they interviewed him, yes. So they interviewed Joseph Bishop, and then after they leave, Joseph Bishop calls you. He did. Was it that night or the day after? That morning, the, right when they left, he called me. And I know this because I was on my way to work. And my office opened at 10 a.m. And I had to pull over because my office at the time was in this old 1800s railroad station building where we have executive suites throughout there. And I had no reception. So I had to stop. And I was late to work because of it. If I had driven all the way to work, I would have lost reception, not been able to talk to him. So I pulled over. Yes. And he said, the BYU police have just left. And I said, they are not police. They're senior sex crimes detectives. And I remember, mm. I remember him saying there, he said, I'm sorry you felt you, you needed to call them. And I said, well, I did. And I remember asking him, so what'd you tell him? He said he told them everything. And I said, well, you must feel really free now. You must, I, I remember thinking, wow, he must really, because, you know, he's, he's older. He's 85. He's had heart surgery. Um, his health isn't the worst, but it's certainly not the best. And I was thinking, wow, how freeing that must be to live this dual life and finally be able to just go, oh, and confess. And it wasn't the case at all. It was not the case at all. But then he goes on to say, you know, we really could have been good friends. We really could have been a tight. And I was like, oh, my God. Thank you. I was like, are you kidding me? Ugh. Yes, we really could have been good friends, Joe, if you hadn't raped me in the basement at the <laughs> MTC. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. Oh, my God. It was awful. But I just said, you know, um, see what he talked about something else, too, that I found interesting. He said, because of because of your calling the police, I will probably not get married again now. Rena is not going to want to be with me. When she hears about this, she's going to suffer from renal failure. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, bless this woman, though, because in that recording, when people listen to the recording and not just read the transcript, they understand that he's kind of throwing her under the bus. He's kind of saying, I feel sorry for her. Um, I didn't know what to do with her on a date that we had. So I took her to the temple, and gosh, in that temple ceremony, I had this extraordinary enlightening vision or confirmation that I was supposed to marry her. Okay, uh, gee, that speaks really highly of your commitment to her, right? How romantic. Wow. Well, at 85, maybe that's as good as it gets. It's, okay. Touché. <laughs> I was going to say, touche, touche. But bless her heart, here's this woman who has already had a, a cheating husband. And what? Oh, this is something I found interesting, too. In the beginning, uh, when we're talking, during the first 40 minutes, he's talking about um, her husband, that he was a cheating husband. And I said, yeah, I had one of those, too, something like that. And he says, yeah, we're everywhere. Oh, my God. I remember picking up on that and thinking, what the? We're oh. everywhere. Yeah. So Rena's going to upgrade from a cheating husband to a raping husband. Exactly. Thank you. But you know what? This woman, bless her heart, was just an innocent victim of his, just like the others. Yes, so many. Yes, and he has this great pedigree. He has this great resume. It's all a lie, but he. Yes. But it looks good on paper. So thanks to you, Rena dodged a bullet. 
I hope so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's not with him now. So, yes, I would assume. Well, a lot has happened since then. There was the leaking of the interview on Mormon Leaks on March 19th. There's the lawsuit that your attorney filed. Yes. There was the press conference that you attended (laughs) and told your side of the story. Yes. There's been a motion filed by the church to have your case dismissed. Oh, bonus. For violation of the statute of limitations. Bonus. And your attorney's filed a response, and now the church has filed a reply. Mm -hmm. Recently, just in the last couple of days, they filed the reply, correct? Yes. Um, But here's the interesting thing, or at least I find it interesting. I don't know if the rest of the world will. But the church's attorney, um, which is outside counsel, David Jordan, with Stolen Reeves in Salt Lake, is um, also – so. When you have you have the law table, you have the prosecution and you have the defendants. So right now I'm the plaintiff. So they're the defendants. But the church's attorney and Joseph Bishop's attorney are all on the same side and they're working together side by side to see that this case goes away. I find that interesting because if the church really was investigating to find out whether or not this really happened, whether or not this is something they need to address, like they say, is so important to get to the truth, why would they be sitting with Joseph Bishop's attorney if they haven't already decided that they're siding with Joseph Bishop? That's an interesting perspective. Uh, Looking at it from a legal perspective, it's possible to see this as them having common interests in defeating your lawsuit. But that's from a dry lawyerly point of view. Well, that's a very dry lawyerly point of view. (laughs) Do you have any information as to whether Joseph Bishop has been excommunicated or disciplined in any way? I can tell you that as of last week, I have learned from someone close to him that he still takes the sacrament that he is still the second president in his ward uh, Sunday school, um, and he still has a temple recommend. So that sounds to me like no discipline whatsoever. As far as I know, that's correct. I've got a feeling here that the church perceives itself in a double bind. Number one, if they do what's right and discipline his ass, Mm -hmm. then they're doing what they should be doing as a church. On the other hand, if they go ahead and excommunicate him now, then they are tacitly admitting that what you allege against him is true. I agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. Because if they were to take any action whatsoever, it, it definitely looks to the rest of us like they believe that he really is guilty of something. But by not taking action, they're also looking like they're covering it up. No, absolutely. And once again, this is... I hate to say this because I've been a member of the church for 40 years. Oh, bless your heart. Yeah, this month marks my 40th anniversary. Tonight is June 28th, 2018 for the record. But it seems that in every instance where the church is pushed into a corner where it has to make a decision to protect its members and do the right thing Mm -hmm. or to protect its image, it will choose protecting its image every time. You know, it seems that way to me, too. The travesty in that is that survivors or victims or whatever we are called, and I'm okay with any title you give me, is that we don't matter. And the fact that our lives are absolutely destroyed doesn't matter. As long as the church looks good, doesn't matter. So the interesting thing that the church has done to try to discredit me um, they never once say, even if you look at their um, their motion to dismiss, they don't say that it didn't happen, that I'm lying, um, that there's no proof. They simply say, well, the statute of limitations has run. And on the fraud theory, well, she should have known back in 1984 that this was a bad guy. Therefore, she should have known at that point. And therefore, the the fraud theory, the statute has run out on that as well. And they forget that I didn't know, I had no idea the church covered it up until December 2nd of uh, 2017. So what they're trying to do in covering up their image is really destroying their image in the eyes of millions. And their business as usual approach worked in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, and it has actually worked up until recently. But now they 
are not taking into account the Me Too movement and the fact that we have global awareness of sexual abuse and intolerance globally. And that's what's changed in the church, but the church is still operating as if they live in 1950. If we blame the victim and we shame the victim, this will go away. And they had no idea that times have changed. They also did not do their homework when they created the dossier on me because everything in that dossier has already been exposed. There is nothing in that dossier that I haven't already heard, read, or thought about. It did not intimidate me for more than a couple of hours. And then it made me angry, and I dug my heels in and said, Hell no, I am absolutely taking you to court, and I will take you as far as I can get. McKenna? Yes. That is an excellent closing statement, a wonderful summation, and I cannot think of anything more to add to that. Thank you. I want to thank you so much for coming on Radio Free Mormon and sharing your story with the audience. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to tell my side of the story and also to make people aware of the tactics that the church uses to silence people who have been victimized um, and their cases have been covered up because I am just a very small cog in a huge wheel. I just happen to be a little bit squeaky. So I'm hoping that other people find their inner voice and their inner strength and they come forward and they express their own truth because there is so much healing just in expressing what happened to them. And without going into any detail, mm -hmm. my understanding is that because of you, and that's my impression, because of you, multiple people are coming forward and talking about their being victims of church leaders. You know, I, I will say this, that um, I set up a Facebook page and I have had over 300 messages a day that I respond to. The, the yay, I think you're great, or thanks for being great and brave and whatever, courageous, I, I don't answer those. The ones that tell their heartfelt story of, you know, thank you for being courageous and coming forward, I now have found an inner strength to, to share my story, at least with my husband or whomever. Those are the ones I respond to, and, and it's, um, it's heartbreaking, heartbreaking. But at the same time, it's empowering to know that one little voice. I'm an ordinary person. There is nothing in my life that is not any more than ordinary. But as an ordinary human being, I can do extraordinary things. By sharing my truth makes me extraordinary. And anyone else who follows that pattern becomes extraordinary because we share the same history. And as we share that, we are empowered, and it empowers other people to come forward and share their story as well. And I'm proud of that. I am very, very proud of that. Well, thank you so much again. Yes, thank you as well. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.